This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb Sycamore, covering much of central Illinois and some of northern Illinois. We're going to have a great show for you today. Uh, I hope everybody had a happy Labor Day. It was a nice Labor Day weekend, and we've certainly enjoyed it. And, uh, of course, we weren't here for the show last week, so it's good to be back. We Remember, this show is brought to you by you. And uh, if you would like to make a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, you can do that by going to our website, and that's catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. And we're brought to you by you and anything that you can give, we would appreciate, large or small. If you want to make a call uh, to the station, you can call us at 309-807-2427. But it's better if you go to our website and you'll find a lot more about us. I'm here with my wife, Lynn, today. We're going to have a great show for you again. We're going to talk about some various topics today and maybe read from a few articles, uh, some excerpts, excerpts. And then we're going to talk in the latter part of the show a little bit bit about climate change. There's a good article in a magazine that talks about that. So we're going to have a good show for you today along those lines. Remember, there are some events coming up uh, that Catholic Spirit Radio is sponsoring on September 29th and 30th. That's a Thursday and a Friday. There will be a Catholic Spirit Radio trip to Canton, Ohio, and uh, to visit the home of the town of Mother Angelica, uh, Rita Rizzo. And there will be a visit uh, to also uh, Rhoda Weiss' home. And uh, Rhoda is the person that uh, inspired uh, Rita Rizzo to become a nun. And, of course, this, you know the rest of the story. Uh, in the long run, she founded uh, EWTN. And, of course, Catholic Spirit Radio broadcasts uh, EWTN uh, programs 24-7. So, uh, in a way, it also inspired us as well, and it's going to be a great trip. On the way there, there will be a stop uh, near Terre Haute, Indiana, at uh, St. Mary of the Woods, and uh, to see the shrine of uh, St. Theodore Guerin, who was a nun from France that came here and did a lot of work right here uh, close to Illinois, and that'll be a great uh, stop as well. So, it's going to be a good show. Uh, the cutoff date is coming up soon, so contact uh, Catholic Spirit Radio. You can call or you can go to the website, and uh, it will tell you there how to uh, go on the trip. So be sure you don't miss it. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit here, uh, I, as I said, about some various articles, and then we'll talk a little bit about, uh, we'll read from an article about climate change. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Lynn, so before I start, I'll ask her if there's anything that she wants to say. Yes, I think the biggest, kind of saddest, heartfelt news I've heard all week was the death of Elizabeth II. She's been with us, well, since I was, she's been queen since I was about 10. And it seems like she stood for Christian principles. She stood for right over wrong. And she was a decent loving person. And I hope Charles III can carry on in his mother's stead because 
This world has changed so much, and we've lost so much as far as respect and decency that her loss, the loss of her, is going to be it's going to be rough. So let's pray for her, not only her soul, but that her spirit lives on in Charles. Yeah, that's a very, very good point, Lynn, because uh, I think she ends an era, and she ends a a tradition, I think, of uh, civility and good manners and self-restraint and uh, the dedication to duty, all of the things that a country needs if it is going to have a viable civilization. And it's sad to say that we in the United States here in my opinion, at least, are losing that. And it seems like we're losing it more rapidly as time goes on. And it's something that uh, I don't think a nation can be without. Uh, I don't think it can last without it. And I think uh, that she represents it so well that that's a lesson that we should take. And there should be, uh, I think, a movement to try and restore that kind of thinking. First, among, I think, our politicians and our rulers in this land, they need to learn those lessons. Of course, all of us need to contribute to that, but it has to start, I think, from the top down if uh, we're going to restore uh, that that kind of uh, uh, stability that a country needs. Exactly. At any rate, uh, I want to talk about talking about that. We're going we're, we're gonna to talk along those lines as we read some articles here. I want to read from an article from the magazine that I use a lot of times on this show, and I think it's one of the best magazines uh, out there. It's a, sort of a political magazine, but it has so much more, and it's called Chronicles, and uh, it's a magazine of culture, and uh, there are a, a lot of good articles in it, and it, it comes at things from what Chronicles calls a paleo-conservative point of view. And, of course, you know, paleo means old or ancient, uh, like if we talk about, you know, the paleolithic area or in, in, in uh, 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 anthropology and so forth. Uh, we're talking about long in the past. And so the people at Chronicles call themselves paleo-conservatives. They mean old-fashioned, old-time conservatives, not at all like what you would think conservatism would be today. And uh, if you wanted to have a perfect paleo-conservative, I think, again, Queen Elizabeth would represent that. Someone from the old school that believes in duty, that believes in restraint, that believes in fairness, that believes uh, in uh, uh, ethics and being of service and all of those kinds of things uh, that we once had. Uh, and expected among our leaders, Elizabeth represented. And so I want to read from this new publisher of Chronicles. And uh, Chronicles was always a magazine that was put out at one time by the uh, Rockford Institute. And uh, it was highly leaned toward uh, Catholicism. And uh, the editor does make some references to Catholic belief here. He, you know, he, he makes references to it in general, but it is, uh, you know, part of our belief and uh, it's important. So I'm going to read from this and I'm going to stress the point that he makes that we all should take uh, when we look at what's going on in modern society, when we look at what's going on in politics, and when we look at what we can expect from government or from our society. And it goes on here, it says, Continuing the Fight is the name of the article. 
and it says, you may have noticed that in the August issue, a new name appeared on the masthead under the title of publisher. I want to take this opportunity to introduce myself and to reaffirm Chronicle's commitment to excellence. I marked the true start of my education nearly 40 years ago when I began reading Chronicles, a magazine of American culture. Like many of our readers have told us, I have learned more from this monthly magazine than all the courses I took as an undergraduate and graduate student. And I might add, I've learned an awful lot from this magazine, too, and I would recommend it for everybody. And especially if you're going to uh, school today, getting a college education today, so much is left out that you'll pick up from reading a magazine like this. Writers such as Catherine Dalton, Thomas Molnar, Theodore Pappas, Samuel Francis, E. Christian Kopp, Paul Gottfried, John Shelton Reed, Garrett Garrett, and Thomas Fleming took a raw, foolish young man and helped to shape him into a person with a better idea of the good life and how to live it. Chronicle's pledge remains what it has been for 45 years, to publish the finest thinkers and writers in the English language on topics of culture and politics. We do this through timely, carefully crafted essays and reviews from a perspective that is grounded in something deeper than what is in vogue in America's academic and political institutions. One could say that the magazine's paleoconservative, that is old-fashioned conservative, perspective lies in resisting the Edenic impulse that has plagued man from the beginning. And when he says Edenic impulse, he means, you know, this idea of creating an Eden on earth, you know, creating a heaven on earth, this idea that somehow or another through politics or anything else that we can perfect people and we can have somehow a, a perfect society. And that's what we seem to believe nowadays that we ourselves can somehow do this, especially without God. He goes on in a sense, this notion defines a paleoconservative. We understand that man sins in a fallen world and that redemption is not to be found within this temporal realm. And that, of course, is a basic Catholic belief that uh, we are sinners and that we suffer from concupiscence and that we are not going to find any heaven on earth. And we have to look to the real heaven and we have to look to God. And uh, without the theme of God running through our country, uh, we are lost. It says, whether you read this magazine's articles on literature, poetry, religion, film, music, or politics, it becomes apparent Chronicles is not on a utopian quest. In other words, there it seems to be that we have today among the so-called progressives and the so-called liberals this idea of creating utopia here on earth that we're somehow or another no more and are better than everybody else that has ever come before us and uh, stand in judgment of them and believe that we can create the great society, the best society, uh, a society like even Eden or heaven on earth, and that we don't need religion or God to do it. And we can see what is happening by following that line. We're destroying a lot of the foundation that our country is built on. He goes on, he says, We recognize, of course, that elites will always have an outsized influence upon American culture, whether in politics, education, media, or even our churches. And we also know that today's elites have betrayed us. Yet from the pages of Chronicles, readers may take strength in hope that a new and finer elite will someday lead a middle American revolution and see the rebirth of the West. Some who read Chronicles have prospered during this postmodern age. 
Yet they also recognize that middle America and much of the West is on its knees, and we are. Chronicles, however, has not and will not take the posture of defeat. We will never forget what has been lost. Our writers will continue to seek victory over the forces aiming to destroy the West, even against overwhelming odds. And again, uh, the uh, Chronicles supports the whole idea of the West. And Western civilization, as I've always said and will say again and again and again, is built on the foundation of the Catholic Church. It was the Catholic Church that built Western civilization after the fall of Rome. And if you look around and see all of the great things about America, about England, and some of the countries of Europe, uh, all of those were were possi- made possible by the foundations laid by the Catholic Church. Uh, he goes on, he says, When I read a particular insightful article in Chronicles, I often think of Wendell Berry's famous character, Burley Coulter, who, echoing St. Paul in the short story The Wild Birds, explains what he means by membership. And he says, The way we are, we are members of each other. All of us, everything. The difference ain't in who is a member and who is not, but in who knows it and who don't. And uh, Roach goes on to say, Chronicles readers are members of a place, and that place, broadly put, is Western civilization. And we are all members of that civilization, and we should understand and realize all of the giants who lived before us that gave it to us and start having, like Queen Elizabeth had so much, more of a respect for what they gave us in the duty and the ethics to carry on. In a narrower sense, we call that place, which is our home, by many names. For Burley, it was the city of Port William. But uh, at any rate, I think it's a, a good introduction, and he signs himself, of course, uh, Robert Roach, Frankfort, Kentucky, is where he's from, and he is the new publisher of Chronicles, and I think it's a very good introduction. The important point to remember is that there is no heaven on earth. We're not going to build it there. We need a little more humility and uh, get, get this idea that somehow we can do this without the basic foundation of the church and the religion that has given us Western civilization. Anything you want to comment on that, Lynn? No, I think he's... His thoughts are very in line with ours. I think so, too, and also in in line with, you know, I'm sure he wrote this before the death of Queen Elizabeth, before it got, you know, into into the magazine. But the point is, is it lines up so much with it. It certainly does. She certainly recognized that and uh, understood that the world's not a perfect place. Nevertheless, she stuck to her ethics and to her discipline and her restraint as a human being, and the knowledge that she had to give up many, many things in order to be queen, and uh, she had to set an example for everyone else, and she did all those things for 70 years without fail. Oh, that's right. She sacrificed a lot, and I don't think people know how much. Can you imagine living that light in your life in that uh the whole world is focused on what you're doing, everything you say. You're not getting everything your children do, and there's where she had problems. She lived in the spotlight all of her life, and uh, it lived she up. Gave to her it. life. That's for sure. 
And there's another article here I wanted to, uh, well, it's getting on here in time, but uh, it's called Staying Sane. And it's by the editor of Chronicles Magazine. Uh, uh, well, it's, it's a letter to the editor of Chronicles Magazine to Paul Gottfried by a reader. But I think it's very apropos for, you know, what's going on now and uh, very apropos to what Elizabeth did as well. And so we're going to go ahead and read that uh, before we get into anything else as well. And uh, again, the title of this letter is called Staying Sane. And uh, if I think it was Rudyard Kipling that said uh, to his letter, in effect, to his son, well, it was a letter to anybody's son or if you had a son. And that was, you know, he his advice was, in this world, when you see everybody else all around you losing losing their heads, if you can keep yours, then you will be a man, my son. And I think that's the advice uh, that uh, the letter here gives. And so we'll get to it uh, after the break here. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnson on Catholic Spirit Radio. Catholic parishes in central Illinois will soon begin their RCIA courses. RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, is a course designed for anyone interested in learning more about the Catholic faith or living it more fully. Perhaps your spouse is Catholic and you have long considered entering the Catholic Church. Maybe you're an active Catholic who has not received all the sacraments of Christian initiation. Perhaps you left the Catholic Church long ago and want your questions and concerns answered before returning. Maybe you're a non-Catholic Christian or not a Christian at all and want to know more about the Catholic Church and the one true God. If any of these circumstances is like your own, then RCIA is just what you need. RCIA classes typically include presentations, discussions, prayer, and fellowship. Contact a Catholic parish near you today for details and to register. Be certain to tell others and feel free to bring a friend. Hi, it's John Hall from Catholic Spirit Radio. Did you know that this radio station was inspired by Mother Angelica? That's one of the reasons we're taking a pilgrimage to her hometown of Canton, Ohio. I'd like you and your friends to join us September 29th and 30th. We'll be leaving from the radio station in Normal on a luxury bus. And tell us more. On our way to Ohio, we'll stop at St. Mary of the Woods in Indiana. The Sisters of Providence will greet us and we'll tour the inspiring St. Mother Guerin Shrine and the National Shrine of Our Lady of Providence. Later, there'll be snacking, praying, and a movie on the bus before we overnight in Canton, Ohio. In the morning, we'll visit the Mother Angelica Museum and the captivating Santa Clara Monastery where Mother Angelica lived and professed her solemn vows. We'll also stop at the Rhoda Weiss Miracle House where Mother Angelica was healed. Jesus and St. Therese of the Little Flower appeared there. Father Jeff Windy will be our spiritual advisor and we plan to attend Mass and pray throughout the trip. Included in the trip are three meals and all side entry fees. There'll be gift shops, grottos, and even an alpaca farm. It's sure to be a pilgrimage filled with whole and inspirational moments. You don't want to miss it. Seating is limited and the deadline is approaching fast. So register today by going online to catholicspiritradio.com or by calling Kathy at 309-828-6554. I truly love you to join me on this September 29th and 30th pilgrimage. Sign up today. This is Bob Johnson. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break, and uh, we were talking, of course, about uh, Queen Elizabeth, and I was talking about uh, 
the new publisher of Chronicles Magazine, which is a great magazine in my opinion, and uh, what he has to say, and he's talking about the fact that uh, we shouldn't expect to build an Eden on earth, and uh, the dogma of the Catholic Church certainly agrees with that and has always uh, meant that, and that uh, our home is in heaven, and uh, we suffer from concupiscence, and we have a tendency to go downhill, and any country to uh, stay uh, ethical and to stay strong needs far more than just the idea of a political organization here on this earth. Uh, it isn't going to bring us heaven on earth. It isn't going to bring us Eden. And it's about time we begin to realize that and understand that uh, our politicians are not gods. And they should understand themselves also that they are not gods and uh, that they have a duty to do what they're supposed to do ethically to the people, and they could take a great lesson from Queen Elizabeth and her duty, uh, her dutiful life, and her dedication to her people, and her dedication to all of the virtues of an earlier era. And we certainly need to return to that if we're going to have a viable government and a viable country. She understood that to who is given much, much is expected. She also understood that uh, freedom means you have responsibility. Exactly. We need a definition of freedom, a good, solid definition of freedom uh, for the whole country. And somebody, uh, maybe ourselves here, can, can come up with a solid definition of it. But freedom has come to mean everything and anything. And uh, in human life and for, for human beings and for any animal or anything living on this planet, freedom doesn't mean doing whatever you please. <laughs> uh, she's being attacked after her death uh, because the British Empire uh, was racist. Yeah, well, this is it's global, this whole racist thing. It's time to realize well, how much the British Empire has given the world, including ourselves, and most of our government, yes. and everything that we got Based came from the British English Empire. Law. In fact, yeah. you know, at one time we were British. <laughs> when you hear that, you know, people say so many times when they're talking about American history, you know, Paul Revere uh, was warned, you know, that ran around the countryside shouting, the British are coming, the British are coming. No, he didn't. He he was British, and he considered himself British, and all the people considered themselves British. He would have rolled around saying, the Redcoats are coming, the Redcoats are coming. But the people were British, and the laws and the, the, everything they enacted were British. They revolted because it was time for them to be able to govern themselves, and they felt they weren't being allowed to do that. They didn't revolt because they were British, or that they hated the British, and <laughs> Much of much of what we have today came from the British, and before that, much of what Britain had came from the Catholic Church. Britain was a solidly Catholic country right up until King Henry VIII, so uh, we won't get into that any further no. today, but uh, we want to make that point. At any rate, here's a letter to the editor of Chronicles Magazine, or about the editor of Chronicles Magazine. It's, it's a letter written by a reader, and he says here, Professor Gottfried, that's the editor uh, of uh, Chronicles, is uh, Paul Gottfried. And he says, Professor Gottfried in the July Chronicles provided a succinct description of the changing meaning of liberalism. And that's one of the things that uh, we should remember about liber liberalism or progressivism. It is constantly changing. It does not have the dogma and the unchanging uh 
principles and uh, percept, precepts of the Catholic Church. It constantly changes from one thing to another, and that's why liberalism is not fit to govern or to, you know, to be the governing principle of a country because its principles are constantly changing. They don't rest on anything solid. They rest on the things of this world, the material things of this world, which are constantly coming and going. And uh, a, a, a country and a government can't rest just on that. He goes on, he says, in its current and probably final version, uh, he's talking about liberalism. It refers to whatever the progressive global elites want it to mean. And that's true. The journey to oblivion, he chronicles, is also paralleled by an analogous collapse of the term conservative. So he's saying here both, <laughs> both the modern conservatism and modern liberalism are, you know, things that are constantly changing and also collapsing. He goes, mirroring the collapse in the meaning of liberal and liberalism has been a collapse in the possibility of political debate in this country. It is quite sufficient to attribute to an opponent one or more of the standard isms and phobias to prevent any discussion. What is hated by today's liberals and progressives is not their opponent's positions. It is that their opponents even exist at all. Hillary Clinton speaking with uncharacteristic honesty during the 2016 election, described her opponents as deplorables, deserving only contempt. In addition to the end of political debate, we are seeing an unparalleled and widespread refusal, at least in this country, on the part of elected and appointed officials to enforce the laws they recently swore to uphold. And that's true. I mean, our border laws are being flaunted. So many other laws are being flaunted. We have presidents that are doing things that really are not constitutional, declaring all kinds of emergency powers and stretching emergency to mean almost anything in order to exercise those so-called powers. And it goes on, he says, their refusal is arrogant. They claim neither that the laws are unjust nor that they have some other impediment they just ignore the law, and that is true. And once officials at the top start ignoring the law, others start ignoring the law, and we are also having a crime spree uh, that's a lot of it caused by this. And, of course, criminals uh, are going to <laughs> sprout like mushrooms if the law is not enforced. It goes on. The mobocracy seen recently in various U.S. cities, especially during the riots of 2020, provides a sad case study in the profound deterioration in language. There are no longer generally accepted meanings to words. Lives lost, billions of dollars of property damage, businesses destroyed and the police vilified. Speaker Pelosi shrugged and remarked that people do what people do. I mean, this is you know something that is, if you want to talk about deplorable, a statement like that is deplorable to just simply ascribe that, that people do what people do. Former Seattle Mayor, Mayor Jenny Durkham described the months of burning as a summer of love. In other words, you know, the very opposite. We're, we're pronouncing evil is good and good is evil, dark is light and light is dark. Isn't that almost word for word from Paul in the Bible, in exactly, the New Testament? Exactly. He saw it in his time. We're seeing it again. George Orwell offered an insight to the progressive elite's motivation. In his novel 1984, the character O'Brien, 
a member of the inner party, tells the prisoner Winston that the party is interested only in power for its own sake and has no interest in the good of others. Orwell clearly described today's progressive elites. He also offered, in the same work, a view of hope, describing Winston writing in his diary of the party's endless lies, and Orwell, Orwell wrote, and I've mentioned this before, it just seems that, that I think last time uh, on the show, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, Christ, talking about Satan, and Christ described Satan as, you know, he was a liar from the beginning. He is the father of all lies. And, uh, you know, we went into Mary and so forth based on that whole idea of Satan being the father of lies and a liar from the beginning. And this is what can destroy not only an individual, but a whole society is simply the total distortion and the refusal to see the truth. Just like Paul said, he couldn't see the truth until the scales fell from his eyes. At any rate, he goes on. He said, he said Orwell wrote about Winston. He said, uh, Winston was a lonely ghost uttering a truth that nobody would ever hear. But so long as he uttered it, in some obscure way, the continuity was not broken. It was not by making yourself heard, but by staying sane that you carried on the human heritage. Professor Gottfried's editorial reminds us that we can and we must stay sane. And I think that's the reason I wanted to read this article is Queen Elizabeth stayed sane in the world that was slowly, in my opinion, going mad. And I think that has reached the height of its madness, uh, at least very close to the height of its madness. And she was a person who stayed sane. And we can take a lesson from George Orwell and also from Queen Elizabeth that if we can do nothing else, it's our duty to know the truth and to stay sane. And isn't it exactly that, Lynn, that it says that Christ said in the Bible, he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Right. Exactly. So that's, that's basically what we need to know. There's some really good articles in this issue. Yeah, there are. Uh, there are some apocalyptic 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 warnings uh, there's an article here called apocalyptic warnings and it's talking about the danger of catastrophic nuclear war weren't you mentioning lynn that uh, you just on heard on one of the programs on tv uh, one of the you know announcers yeah, they mentioned that uh, about uh, talking about uh, a limited nuclear war yes that uh, some of the politicians in this country are talking about the use of a limited nuclear war and, uh, to end this going on in Ukraine. Well, that's insane, totally insane. You don't limit nuclear war. I know. And then, you know, this article here that's talking about it. Maybe it's, they're uh, crawling under a rock. Yeah, this ar article here talking about it, it says, uh, you know, like talking about the Ukraine situation, it says uh, – Iowa Republican Senator Joni Erst called for the absolute annihilation of the Russian forces and uh, went on to, I think, describe that in even, you know, har harsher terms about we should send them bruised and bleeding and crawling back to Russia so that they never, ever can get up and come back again. And then there were some others that were actually talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the fact is, is that the we should be prepared to use uh, nuclear weapons. I mean, this is carrying something way too far. It goes on here and it talks about uh, 
this is a world in which far-left actor Sean Penn, and he is very far to the left, oh, he's nuts. can go to News Corp headquarters and express his concern to Fox News host Sean Hannity that the United States might be too intimidated to new- use nuclear weapons against Russia. He says, no one wants to see a nuclear conflict at the same time. If only one bully is going to be able to use those weapons, we have to rethink what we are doing. Well, I don't know what he means by that, but I mean, is he saying that somehow or another, in order to win this Ukraine conflict, we have to be willing to resort to nuclear weapons? Uh, Penn told Hannity, who didn't bat an eye. And there's Hannity, in other words, he's saying is probably pretty well agreed with it. But this is, well, I don't know. Then he said Hannity didn't bat an eye. Uh, it goes well, on. dealing with Sean Penn, I wouldn't. Bad and I either. Well, the thing is, is I think there are a lot of places in which the left and right converge in a lot well, of in some you're situations. You're right there. You're right. You know, so that part. At any rate, uh, the the Wall Street Journal published an opinion piece by a George W. Bush administration neoconservative. He doesn't say who. He's a neoconservative who agreed wholeheartedly with Penn. It was titled, The U.S. Should Show That It Can Win a Nuclear War. Now, this is you know, getting a little bit extreme for us to be involved in Ukraine to the extent that we are willing to let it uh, move into a nuclear war. We had missiles in Cuba, remember, back in the 1960s. Oh, and both yeah. sides dealt very gingerly with this situation. Uh, we were very, very worried about getting into some kind of a nuclear war. It seems in this day and age, we are acting as if all of that is gone, that somehow we don't have to worry about getting into a nuclear war. Uh, We resolved the problem in Cuba. Russia removed its missiles, and the Kennedy administration was able to resolve it. We, of course, couldn't let them stay there. But we certainly didn't jump to the conclusion that we needed to start and win a limited nuclear war in order to resolve the situation. And it's pretty frightening and scary to have people on both sides, from the far left and also from the conservative right, to be agreeing on that we could possibly win a limited nuclear war in order to resolve a problem such as Ukraine which is, you know, a problem that's further away from us than the problem in Cuba was. And yet we didn't have, no, no one at that time, hopefully, was thinking that the resolution might be a limited nuclear war. And we did get it resolved. Well, wasn't one of these people an economist? And I was just shocked that he would think of such a thing or agree to such a thing. I'm not sure on that, but uh, I would I would agree with you. If it, I'll take your word for it, and I guess you would be shocked. It goes on here. Even if only 100 modern nuclear weapons were exchanged, more than 5 billion people or two-thirds of the world's population would die of starvation. And back at that time, when the, during the Cuban crisis, Russia had about 500 nuclear missiles, as far as our intelligence knew. And now uh, intelligence tells us that Russia has at least 6,000, you know, nuclear weapons. And uh, at least 1,500 or so of those nuclear weapons are mounted on rockets that can reach all over the world. Some of those rockets can move at extremely uh, high and fast speeds, and there isn't much warning at all uh, before those rockets get here. And we have the same thing on our side. And so, I mean, but just think of that, if only 100 were exchanged uh, it could cost the lives of 5 billion people. Uh, so maybe we better start thinking about the restraint that uh, 
Queen Elizabeth showed that we need to show more restraint and uh, caution and carefulness in doing things than some of the rhetoric that is beginning to pour out of people uh, and the lack of restraint and manners that we're having today. So at any rate, we're going to have to stop here and take a break. We're going to come back and talk a little bit about the theme that's been going on for the last probably 20, 30, 40 years, and that is climate change. You know, it started out as global cooling, and then it went to global warming, and now it's called climate change. And uh, there's a good article on it by a man that's a very good writer with a lot of uh, good information and statistics. And so we'll read that article as the last part of this show. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Catholic parishes in central Illinois will soon begin their RCIA courses. RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, is a course designed for anyone interested in learning more about the Catholic faith or living it more fully. Perhaps your spouse is Catholic and you have long considered entering the Catholic Church. Maybe you're an active Catholic who has not received all the sacraments of Christian initiation. Perhaps you left the Catholic Church long ago and want your questions and concerns answered before returning. Maybe you're a non-Catholic Christian or not a Christian at all and want to know more about the Catholic Church and the one true God. If any of these circumstances is like your own, then RCIA is just what you need. RCIA classes typically include presentations, discussions, prayer, and fellowship. Contact a Catholic parish near you today for details and to register. Be certain to tell others and feel free to bring a friend. Hi, it's John Hall from Catholic Spirit Radio. Did you know that this radio station was inspired by Mother Angelica? That's one of the reasons we're taking a pilgrimage to her hometown of Canton, Ohio. I'd like you and your friends to join us September 29th and 30th. We'll be leaving from the radio station in Normal on a luxury bus. And tell us more. On our way to Ohio, we'll stop at St. Mary of the Woods in Indiana. The Sisters of Providence will greet us and we'll tour the inspiring St. Mother Garen Shrine and the National Shrine of Our Lady of Providence. Later, there'll be snacking, praying, and a movie on the bus before we overnight in Canton, Ohio. In the morning, we'll visit the Mother Angelica Museum and the captivating Santa Clara Monastery where Mother Angelica lived and professed her solemn vows. We'll also stop at the Rotoweiss Miracle House where Mother Angelica was healed. Jesus and St. Therese of the Little Flower appeared there. Father Jeff Windy will be our spiritual advisor and we plan to attend Mass and pray throughout the trip. Included in the trip are three meals and all site entry fees. There'll be gift shops, grottos, and even an alpaca farm. It's sure to be a pilgrimage filled with whole and inspirational moments. You don't want to miss it. Seating is limited and the deadline is approaching fast. So register today by going online to catholicspiritradio.com or by calling Kathy at 309-828-6554. I'd truly love you to join me on this September 29th and 30th pilgrimage. Sign up today. Hi, this is Bob Johnson. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break, and we've talked about uh, the example that Queen Elizabeth has set and a number of points uh, that uh, were illustrated uh, or could be solved by using her uh, example of duty, restraint, and uh, manners, and civility, and love for her people and her country. Uh, we're going to read also now from an article concerning the uh, global uh, 
uh, climate change, I should say, the climate change situation. Uh, at one time, of course, this situation has been going on for a long time. At one time, uh, it started out as global cooling. That's been quite some time ago. And then it moved over to global warming. And now, of course, uh, to cover both global warming or global cooling, I guess to cover all the bases, uh, modern progressives call it climate change. And that's been going on for some time, some time and it's sort of a, uh, an alarmist situation. The article here is called uh, Amnesia of the Weather Alarmists, and it's uh, from Chronicles by Roger D. McGrath. And he's a great writer, and he writes uh, a lot about American history and world history and makes it uh, very interesting to read. And so he's showing uh, the information that these uh, weather alarmists leave out. And he says, this summer once again has been uh, the mainstream media engaged in uh, heat wave hysteria. Instead of its summer folks expect hot weather, we get uh, a heat uh, uh, is causing temperatures to break records and threaten lives. A heat dome, I guess he's talking about here. A heat dome is causing temperatures to break records, break records and threaten lives. In other words, instead of saying, well, it's hot, folks, it's summertime, as we used to say in the past, and we're getting a lot of heat here, now we have to phrase it something like a, some kind of a scientific phraseology. A heat dome is causing temperatures to break records and threaten lives. And he goes on, a heat dome? Years ago, it would have been reported that high pressure had settled on a particular area, causing temperatures to soar. But now each July, August, and September, we hear hyperbolic descriptions of hot weather as if it's not something that has occurred every summer in living memory. I suppose it's a sign of my age that the worst heat wave I remember occurred not this year or last or four years ago, but in 1955. For those of us living in Pacific Palisades, a small town sandwiched between the Santa Monica Mountains on one side and bluffs that drop precipitously down to the beach on, and the Pacific Ocean on the other, the 1955 heat wave was something to behold. In those days, the Palisades rarely had summer daytime temperatures above 80 degrees. A high of 85 would have been a scorcher. However, in September 1955, we had a day after day of nearly 100 or above. Some, same for our next-door neighbor up the coast, Malibu. Our next-door neighbor down the coast, Santa Monica, averaged closer to 90 degrees each of the heat wave days, but only because Santa Monica took her official temperature at the end of the Santa Monica Pier, which juts a couple hundred yards into the ocean. This trick gave Santa Monica the most equitable climate in the nation, on paper anyway, and Santa Monica bragged about it. I remember it all clearly because for a Palisades Beach kids, the temperatures, not for a single day but for more than a week, were shocking, and no one had air conditioning. Typically, our summer days started with fog and overcast and didn't clear until 10 in the morning. By then, the sea breeze had started to pick up much to the dismay of those of us surfing, who saw the beautiful early morning glassy water surface begin to ripple. That same sea breeze, so hated by surfers, usually kept summer high temperatures in the 70s along the coast. As bad as the heat wave was for us coastal softies, it was far worse for those in Los Angeles, where temperatures averaged 7 to 10 degrees hotter. 
The temperature soared to 101 in Los Angeles on August 31st and then hit, hit 110 the next day. This was a Palm Springs temperature. As the night of September 1st turned into the morning of September 2nd, the temperature in Los Angeles was still in the high 80s. It wasn't until shortly before dawn that it finally got down to 83, a record high for an overnight low. Two hours after sunrise, the temperature was back in the 90s, and at 12.45 p.m., it peaked at 108. September 3rd cooled to a high of 105. It wasn't until September 8th that the daily high fell below 100. By that time, 946 people had reportedly died from the excessive and prolonged heat. Mortuaries were overwhelmed. Inland areas continued to swelter for another two or three days. San Bernardino recorded an unofficial high temperature of 116 degrees and an official high of 115.5 on September 6 after several days of 111 and one of 114. In addition to the many people who succumbed to the heat, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of small livestock such as chickens and rabbits also died. In the midst of the 1955 heat wave, I recall adults talking about the heat wave of July 1936, which affected most of the United States, but was particularly severe on the Great Plains and in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin and Minnesota. Known for their icebox winters, both had more than one town record of official temperature of 114 degrees. They were easily topped by another icebox state, North Dakota, which saw the town of Steele record a high of 121. Two towns in Iowa hit 117 degrees, and Nebraska and Missouri each had two towns with highs of 118. Oklahoma had two towns with highs of 120 degrees, and Kansas had two with 121-degree highs. To this day, the 1936 heat wave, which killed 5,000 to 10,000 Americans, remains the hottest on record, and the hottest single month in U.S. history remained, remained July 1936. Imagine if we were having temperatures of 121 degrees in those states today. What would our global warming chicken littles with memories that go back less than a decade do? Hysteria may, hysteria may be too gentle a word. Until fairly recently, Americans stoically endured hot summers. During the heat wave of 1886 on the northern high plains, the town of Dickinson in Dakota Territory went ahead with a great 4th of July celebration despite temperatures hovering, hovering around 112 degrees. There was a parade that featured a band, female equestrians, Civil War veterans, two floats, one with a Lady Liberty and one with 38 schoolgirls dressed in white, representing the states of the Union, and dozens of carriages carrying town folk. Hundreds of people came into Dickinson from all the surrounding ranches and towns for the celebration. They stood in the blazing sun and watched the parade with such enthusiasm that many jumped in at the rear and joined the procession. The featured speaker of the day was a prominent rancher by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, who delivered his first major public speech. He did so dressed in a suit. The, probably wool. <laughs> probably. The highest temperature ever recorded by an official weather station anywhere in the world is the 134-degree reading taken at Furnace Creek 
in Death Valley on July 10th, 1913. Once upon a time, we California kids were taught about Death Valley and its record-setting temperatures. It was one of my home state's many distinctions that made me a California chauvinist. Death Valley holds another distinction, one that helps explain why it's so hot. The floor of the, the valley is generally below sea level, and at Badwater, it's 282 feet below, making it the lowest spot not only in the United States, but in all of North America. A new phrase I've been hearing more often from climate alarmists and the mainstream media is weather extremes. I suppose this switch from global warming has become necessary because of severe, because of several record setting low temperatures during recent winters. However, radical annual swings in highs and lows are nothing new. The year of the highest temperature in Death Valley, 1913, also saw the lowest temperature ever recorded in the valley, 15 degrees at Greenland Ranch on January 2nd. Extreme weather hysterics are also hyperventilating about heavy rainfalls and severe droughts. Again, this is nothing new. The 1860s in California are a case in point. Heavy rain came to California in November 1861 and continued intermittently until just before Christmas. Then a series of storms brought rain for a month. By then, San Francisco, which normally receives 23 inches for an entire rainfall season, had received 49 inches, and the Sacramento River had reached flood stage of 24 feet. Mining camps in the foothills of the Sierras received precipitation of biblical proportions. Nevada City, 115 inches. Sonora, 102 Red Dog over 11 inches in one day. Grass Valley, 9 inches. The entire Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys were underwater up to 30 feet deep in places. The state capital, Sacramento, was chest deep in water, and Leland Stanford was forced to go to his gubernatorial inauguration in a rowboat. Oregon, Washington, and California alike, said the San Francisco call on January 12, 1862, have been wrecked, and Sacramento has been drowned out of existence. Also drowned out of existence were farms and ranches which lost more than 200,000 cattle and 600,000 sheep. Estimates puts the loss of human life at more than 4,000 people. A portion of those losses came from Southern California, which also felt the fury of the storms. By the end of January, Los Angeles had received 37 inches of rainfall, nearly triple her annual average. On Tuesday last, commented the Los Angeles Star, the sun made its appearance. The phenomenon lasted several minutes and was witnessed by a great number of persons. The next two years saw almost no rain. Areas that had received 50 or 60 inches of rain in one year received no more than 7 or 8 inches in two years. Summer saw temperatures soar into the triple digits for days on end. The grasslands that had caused cattle to grow fat disappeared. Upwards of 250,000 cattle died. The combined losses from the flood and the drought destroyed California's fabled ranches, some of them dating back to the first Spanish land grants. Of the, 18, of the 1780s. Destroyed also was the way of life of the Rancho Dons and their families, depicted so romantically by Richard Henry Dana in his memoir, 
two years before the mast. The most recent term used by the climate alarmists is the all-inclusive climate change, as if the climate hasn't continually been changing for four billion years. Heck, millions of years ago, we had dinosaurs living in jungles and swamps in Wyoming. 15,000 years ago, much of North America was covered by sheets of ice that were three miles deep in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And I want to add that during that time, there are some scientists that speculate the ice might have been close to seven miles thick in places in Illinois. Imagine that. You're talking 35 or 40,000 feet of ice. And that ice also melted off during a great warming period, you know, that was that lasted for four or five thousand years before we got our 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 climate that we're living in today. Uh, think of the global warming that began some eleven thousand years ago and has brought us today's climate. Just imagine what global warming there was to melt off all that ice. What has man had to do with that? And what will man have to do with the climate when our current warm period ends and we enter another ice age? Well, we certainly will, and probably in the next two or 3,000 years. Man can certainly pollute, contaminate, and decimate local environments, but affect significant changes in global climate? No. Man has no control over the principal factors determining climate, tectonic plate movement, circulation patterns of ocean and air currents, volcanic eruptions, meteor strikes, the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit, shifts in the tilt of the Earth's axis, the precession of the axis, and activity on the surface of the sun. None of those things are under our control. Don't expect virtue-signaling elitists and hysterical green cultists flying to climate conferences in their private jets to rescue us from our next heat wave. Think instead of those rugged souls in Dakota Territory on the 4th of July, 1886, who didn't let a hot day spoil their fun. So I think that's an article we should keep in mind. It's very interesting, and it's also very true. Uh, I can imagine what the climate people would be doing, Lynn, if they could hear my father's description of what it was like in Kansas back in the 1930s. My father was a railroader and a machine operator on the railroad, and he worked in those days all over the country, wherever the railroad sent him. And he was very, very lucky to have the job. Most people, he said out in Kansas, there were many people who were working for 15 cents an hour. And uh, he said the dust would rise up. He said it would be 50, 60, 70 miles away, and you could see it coming. And he said when it hit, it would be so dark, it would be like night. And in the depot, they would hardly even be able to see the light bulb, and it would get into everything. I mean, he said there were places on the track where, you know, the track was high on its uh, banks. And down below, he said you could see farms where all that was left sticking up was a weather vane sticking up from a barn. The rest of it was covered in dust. There were people that choked to death on the dust. And my father was helping to remove cattle from Kansas and ship them up into Minnesota because they were dying of thirst. And he said he never went back to Kansas again. He swore he would never ever go there again. He never did. No, <laughs> when they came out to visit us in Idaho, yeah. they did not go through Kansas. No, he refused. And uh, he said that uh, the water they drank was out of tank cars that sat in the sun out there for weeks. <laughs> he said 10, 12 days at a time. And he said it was so warm, it tasted like you know what. And, uh, and it uh, 
when they, the train got back into Iowa on their way back, him and another guy, they were shouting and screaming and everything else. Look at that outside. He was saying it's green and there's water in the creeks. So, I mean, some of the people today should take, uh, understand what it was like for those poor people back at that time. There were people that thought it was the end of the world. My dad said there were people walking down the tracks. He said you could wave your hand right in front of their faces and they wouldn't even recognize that you were there. Their eyes were just glazed over. They were just absolutely stunned and sort of like insane. And you'd ask them where they were going and they would simply say east. They were just walking away from ranches that were just destroyed and ruined, farms that were ruined, people starving. Oh, many people died. Many children many ch- died. Children died. Uh, their lungs were filled with sand and the railroaders tried to help out the best they could you know said we gave whatever we could give because we even gotten to sealed refrigerators yeah he said that it would get into the refrigerator even though it was sealed the dust everywhere yeah so this is nothing what we have going on today is mild compared to what's happened in the past and in the very recent past actually because that hasn't been that long ago at any rate we're going to have to stop here and say our prayer and uh, St. Michael, the archangel, defend, defend us in, in battle. We are protection against the wicked snares of the devil. devil. May God, May God rebuke, rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince, Prince of the heavenly host, host by the power of God, thrust in hell Satan, Satan and all evil spirits, spirits who wander through the world for their souls. souls. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio 